Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum. My guest today is one of the foremost reporters in the pro wrestling industry you'll find anywhere. It's Mike Johnson from PWInsider.com. Mike approaches his craft so thoroughly and so professionally that I can say as soon as I see that he is reporting something, I immediately know that it is legitimate. He's someone who came into writing as a wrestling fan in a unique way. He knows just about everyone, and he has the respect of pretty much everyone, too. And I think you'll find his story pretty interesting. So here we go right now with Mike Johnson from PW Insider. So honored to be joined today by one of the foremost reporters in pro wrestling from PWInsider.com. It is Mike Johnson. Mike, welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. So happy you're with me today. Well, thank you, Phil. I've been trying to get on the show for like three years, and you wouldn't let me on. So I appreciate you finally letting me sneak in the back door and be here. You wanted to be on the show before it even was an idea in my mind. <laughs> I knew about this show before you did, sir. I had a premonition. No, I'm just right. it, it, good. It's good to see you. It's good to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to see you at the shows. Uh, I don't do a lot of these, but when you asked, I was like, absolutely, because I know the just the level of work ethic that you have, and I've seen the interviews that you do here, and you have a high high bar for your quality in general, both in writing and in your interviews. So I, I considered it a, a really uh, a compliment that you even asked me. So. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and obviously, I, I think the same of, of your work, too. And Let's start with what your path into pro wrestling and journalism was. Did you, a, and did you ever complete, think you, a, no, a did you ever think you'd be doing either one? And, and how did you get here? A car wreck, literally. Um, so I always loved pro wrestling, and I always loved writing. And it was some, like when the advent of the internet happened, it was a, a place where I could write. But this was never going to be my path. My whole dream my entire life was to shift, ship myself out of New York and go to San Francisco and work for Lucasfilm. And I was working in the, uh, the entertainment industry uh, in talent management and doing some film, and, uh, film production and representing Broadway actors and stuff. And in July of 2001, I was in a wreck. I was a passenger in a car wreck on Sunrise Highway in Long Island, New York. And you name it, I probably broke it. Uh, if I didn't have my seatbelt on, I would have died and in fact, uh, when the police arrived, I was out of the car and they had initially reported me as dead on impact, to which I wow. responded, I'm not dead, sir. I'm just out of the car. Um, and I was in so much pain and it was like 18 months to two years of surgeries and physical therapy and whatnot. And I was basically writing a little bit for OneWrestling.com at the time, which Dave Scherer was basically the managing editor of. And when Dave's Dave, I've always done stuff for Dave dating back to like July of 95 or whatever it was or 95, 96, always been a friend, always been a supporter, always had my back. And when he left one wrestling to go to PW insider and formed that in January of 2004, he made me privy to that information. And without even asking about money or asking about anything, I basically said, okay, I'm going to go with you. And the timing was serendipity. Because I had gone, I had, after all everything that I had gone through to get my body back to normal, which it never really got back to normal. Like when you go through something that traumatic, which I do not advise anyone to do, you never feel the same again. But by the time I was good enough to go back to work, I didn't have the same passion for that sort of job and that sort of life and that sort of career the way I did before I got injured. Um, because it's a 20, not that what I do now is not a 24 7 grind, but working a 24 7 grind in Los Angeles hours when you live in New York, it, it, it wears you down in, in a general term. But after everything I had been through, suddenly it felt very vapid and shallow and it did, did not fulfill me the way that I did, the way that it did before. Um, so I literally, I've told this story on PW Insider a million times, so I'll make it a short version. Mm -hmm. I was having a horrible day at my job. I walked out during my lunch and we, we were on West 74th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. And I just started wandering, and I ended up all the way down where Central Park is, where the Central Park Zoo is. And I don't even remember walking into the park, but somehow I found myself sitting there at the park bench looking at the sea lions. And I was like, what am I doing? This is awful. I don't want to be here. Every day I wake up and I'm miserable. What do I want to do? And literally the light bulb went off, and I said, I just want to write. I didn't care what I wrote about, whether it was wrestling or anything else. I just want to write. And I took a deep breath, and I said, all right, from this point on, I'm a writer. And I walked all the way back left the keys with the doorman and just went home, said nothing, no notice, nothing. And they're like, where are you? Uh, and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And there were some other extenuating circumstances as well. Like 
checks that went like this and bounced when they shouldn't have. And when that happens one too many often, suddenly you're very miserable and you're wondering why you're doing these things. Um, so I basically went home and I just started writing. That was March of 2023. And next thing I knew, within like two months, there was sort of, hey, next year, we're gonna we're gonna be doing this if you want to you want to come on board and i didn't talk money i didn't talk responsibilities it's like you have my back all these years i will have your back and that's kind of been the relationship dave and i've had some from day one and it just sort of took off from there like when january 2004 happened suddenly i was doing i was not only doing it full-time but i was making money full-time and i've been doing it ever since i'm just like like anybody else who likes pro wrestling and works in the pro wrestling industry I'm living basically upon the the blessing and the gift of a wrestle of the wrestling fans that care about pro wrestling in general, and they've been kind enough to support us from day one, either through reading the site or subscribing to our subscriber section, the elite section. And I, my house that I'm sitting in now is because of wrestling fans. The car that I drive is because of wrestling fans. And I was just very lucky that I had this uh, uh, this epiphany in my brain of, all right, I'm miserable here. And I can go be miserable elsewhere, or I can try and do something that I think is going to make me happy and something that I'm passionate about. And even if I'm miserable doing that, at least I'm doing it for myself. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing it for someone that doesn't respect me and someone that's lying to their clients and someone that's bouncing checks on me and someone whose name I will not say because they have way more money than me, even though there's not an NDA and I don't want to get sued. But it, uh, you know, it, it was it was like a very freeing moment, and I hope everyone in their life finds that because there's nothing better than being able to work for yourself and being able to do what you're passionate about. Even though, even though I get, listen, I work from the second I get up to the second I go to sleep, which my family absolutely hates, but it is, I basically get to write about the thing that I would be, I get to write and be paid talking about something that I would be paying to watch anyway. So it, right. it really is a blessing. And I, you know, and like even meeting you over the year, you know, meeting and everyone else I've met over the, the years of my journey, there's been a bunch of really wonderful people who have been kind to me. And I, I'm really the recipient of that. And uh, I don't know when or if it will ever end. I hope it never does. I have a mortgage uh, like everybody else, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I like this January will be 20 official years of PW insider blows my mind. Congratulations! On I, that. I mean, it, it's not just me. There's a whole team of people, and a whole team, mm -hmm. you know, and when I say team, I mean everybody who's ever read the site. I yeah. always say the extended family, but it's like crazy. Like I was 29 when PW Insider launched, and now I'm hurtling towards 50. And what have I done with my life? But I chose this jail cell yeah. that I live in, you know. <laughs> and no, you know, the thing that dawns on me: uh, any, any any journalism training as you went into this at all? Because the skills so, that you need to use are that. So a, it's weird. Like I have, a, I, I don't have an official journalism degree, but back in the early nineties, I went to a school called John bound high school, which is in Flushing. And they have a version of this now, but it's changed and it's got a fancy new name that I don't even know. But at the time they had a, um, a program called the center for writing. And basically you were taking college level courses from the second you were a freshman in high school. So you were taking courses on Shakespeare, you're taking courses on journalism, you were going and you were working in newsrooms, you were taking courses on everything you could imagine from science fiction to Tennessee Williams. So it was like a boot camp for writing. So like when most people go to high would go to school, they'd have like one writing class. We might have two or three a day, as well as an additional history class, as well as everything else, because it was a very unique uh, uh, sort of schedule and a very unique sort of system so there was a lot of there was a lot of dramatics there was a lot of writing there were a lot of exercises and i went to school all year like there were there were classes during the summer so it was like i went all year so for three or four years thanks to that school i had a big sort of boot camp in that and then a lot of it was learning work ethic from people in the entertainment industry of all right the you're here it's 9 a.m the phones are not going to ring unless you make them ring so it's time to go and hustle and start to pitch clients for film and TV and Broadway and get those casting directors back on and those producers back on the phone so that you can talk up your clients. And a lot of that is not all that different from chasing a story when you hear it. So all right, I hear something about Vince McMahon. I'm going to have to start beating the drums. And sometimes it's I'm going to talk about something that I've heard and see if somebody from WWE comes back and says, no, that's garbage or no, that's right. Or you start just calling people that you trust and sources that you built up to say, I've heard this about Vince McMahon. Hey, what do you have you heard anything? And sometimes you'll get something. Sometimes that one person will lead you to the other person. 
it really, you know, it's never the same, but a lot of it is just all of these different elements of things that I learned in my life. And I was lucky. I knew I had a knack for writing literally when I was in third or fourth grade. Like you remember those old like scholastic like essays yeah. they used to have to give us? And it was like, you have to write 500 words or whatever it was. I realized very early on in life that the more descriptive I was, um, I could get through that quicker and be done with it and just go read my DC comic books. So I was very, very happy to like rip through something and be like, and the UFO was vibrant and shaking. And it, you know, like, I, it just, it worked for me yeah. and I was very lucky. And, you know, and a lot of it too is I was from I, my parents, my grandmother, all these people around me always pushed reading on me. So my mm -hmm. vocabulary was insane even when I was a kid because I was reading all these science fiction novels and fantasy books and comic books and history books. I just was very lucky and all these things sort of amalgamated together and for whatever reason it worked. What wrestling stuff were you reading before you became, uh, before you started writing for uh, like, I guess one wrestling and no, nothing, nothing, nothing. No, the, uh, the gateway drug for me for wrestling was the old John Arezzi radio show and W E B E A M. Oh. 10:50 a.m. Um, so there were there were a couple of radio shows in New York. Jody McDonald used to be on WFAN. Right. And he would do like a segment every Saturday at like three or four o'clock in the morning. So if I was smart enough to set my alarm or I remembered, I'd listen to that. But I don't even know how it happened. But a, a, an issue of John Arezzi's newsletter just showed up at my house one day, and the only thing that I could figure out is John probably had the old Herb Abrams mailing list from Herb Abrams version. Wow. Of because I remember calling and leaving a message with our address because my father had said, I'll take you guys if you want to go get the information. Of course, we never heard anything back. So we never, I never got to go to a Herb Abrams show. But like a year later, we had moved and all of a sudden this huge chunk of mail showed up that had been huh. forwarded from the old address. And in the middle of it was a wrestling spotlight newsletter. I was like, what is this? And it was people <laughs> writing about the inside of wrestling, which you knew there had to be some sort of back backstage. But yeah. who knew? I had no idea. They're like, talking about bookers and things like that. I had no idea what they were talking about. So I started listening to the John show and like just John and John having Cactus Jack on there and Paulie Dangerously and Superstar Graham and all these other people. Like that was kind of my, my, my gateway into the inside of wrestling. It, they, there was a guy named Donnie Leibel who used to do like wrestling news yeah. and break it down. And, and John, like I met John a million times when I was a teenager because he would do conventions and bus trips and stuff. And he was always so kind to me. He always like, Oh, you should you should talk to this person and John John helped me out with a lot of networking early on, and then really but they, like someone's like oh I grew up with these newsletters that wasn't me it was John's radio show. That's and, wild. I feel like everybody's entry is a little bit different of how they kind of learn about what wrestling is. Mine was just I'm on the internet for I didn't have like a computer at home when I was a teenager because it was not the time that you'd have one. So when I started college, I was 17 and. Uh, 97 was like, oh, let me see what I can find out about wrestling. And you find all those websites that were going on. Half of them are probably the hogwash. Well, but... well, for me, it was when I got AOL. And AOL mm. had the old AOL grandstand area. So there were a lot of people who were talking and writing about wrestling there. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy that this many people like wrestling like I do. Because I think, you know, before you before like that advent of the Internet, unless you had friends that you grew up with and you met someone at a show, and usually when you meet someone at a show, it was a little weird. Like it was always a little, someone was a little, always a little askew when you would sit next to them at shows. You were like, ah, I don't really know if I want to talk to this person all that much. But the, you know, you would find those sort of similar minded people who were passionate about just tra tracking down the knowledge of, all right, there was Memphis wrestling and I knew about it from the magazines, but now they, they, these people have tapes and then you start trading tapes for new and old stuff because you might live in New York and you might have something access to something that they don't have in California or they don't have in Florida, but they've got stuff. And all of a sudden the tapes start circulating as the old mystery science theater fans might say. And, you know, suddenly you've got this huge collection of stuff that you're passionate about. And it's totally different now where you can go click, click, click. I can yep. watch everything ever. There was this feeling of accomplishment of tracking down this stuff and this feeling of, Oh my God, is it going to come today? Is it going to come today? And so you would get a lot of, uh, you would learn a lot from just that sort of exchange of knowledge and passing around tapes and then discussing it with people that you were friends with in chat rooms and stuff. And it was really like this fun golden age of all these people who were discovering the internet at the same time, who were connecting with people that had the same sort of interests. Like there was the prodigy area, 
which mm-hmm. Bob Ryder, the late Bob Ryder, r- ran. There was yep. the AOL Grandstand area. And then, you know, there was RSPW. So Dave Shearer was on RSPW. I was on AOL. Ryder was on uh, Prodigy. And then, like, I was lucky enough that when ECW started coming to New York, I happened to be standing behind Dave at a concession stand. And he had already had his wrestling lariat newsletter. And I was probably had, you know, one too many that evening. And I said, oh, I'm a good writer. I'm going to write for you when I come to New York. And I'm sure Dave was like, yeah, whatever. And then I started sending the stuff in. And I guess, in, to his credit, there were people who didn't like me back then. And Dave always had my back. I was like, no, nah, I see something in him. See something in him. And if it wasn't for Dave, I wouldn't be doing this right now. Uh, you know, it's it's like all these little pieces. You know, it's like the going to the first Manhattan Center Monday Night Raw, which I only went to because it was not far from where I was going to college at the time. I ended up meeting some of my best friends on the line that night. People that, you know, are still in my life today. It's like all these little things. It really is like, you know, one little drop droplet of water falls into the river and the, you know, the ripple effect cascades out. You don't realize it far, far later how, like, if it had you hadn't been in that place at that moment, at that time, on that date, your entire life would be different. All your friendships would be different. Yeah. Your, your journey would be different. So it's, it really is like, for me, a lot of luck and a lot of timing. And so when I saw you at MLW last year, I think it was, I had the chance for the first time to meet Vladimir, the super fan, which was a real <laughs> thrill for me. Um, tell me about him and how did how you guys met? What makes him awesome? And, you know, just does anybody love pro wrestling more than this guy? No, no, no. Vince McMahon doesn't love pro wrestling more than Vladimir. Um, Vla- so I met Vlad at the early Monday Night Raws. He and uh, Ringside Charlie, who was his longtime cohort, this the the dude with the ponytail who had the YouTube video, the YouTube video WWE produced about being at every WrestleMania, which is one hundred percent legitimate. Yep. I get emails about that all the time. Oh, it's not true. It was. I, I I I've seen the ticket stubs, and you can find him in the footage of every WrestleMania if you look. Um, and I've been with him from every WrestleMania from 17 on. So I can tell you from 2001 on, he was at every single one because I traveled with them. Um, so Vlad is a very interesting guy. So he grew up in Haiti. His mother had emigrated here and then brought their family here. And so he grew up in, he grew up basically in New York. He was originally from Haiti and just one day fell in love with pro wrestling and he wanted to be a wrestler. And if you ever see younger pictures of Vlad, he's a big jacked up dude, very athletic, um, like people thought he was a wrestler. Yeah, people first, thought he was like Vin. The first time I saw him was on the MSG show when he picked Roddy Piper as the yeah. Hulk Hogan mystery partner. And I figured he had to be somebody who knew somebody based on how he looked. So, so here's the funny story. And this is like one of those things like you never can predict what's going to happen in life. So my brother and I, my younger brother and I would watch those MSG shows religiously once we got cable. And we would be like, who are these people in the front row? And my brother was convinced that, Charlie was Sid Fernandez because Sid Fernandez of the New York Mets. My brother's huge New York Mets fan. He's been suffering since uh, 86 after they won the world series. I'm sorry. Um, So he, they had sort of similar hair and in the program for the New York Mets that year, they had a thing like, what was your favorite thing about living in New York or playing in New York? And Sid Fernandez said, going to Madison Square Garden for WWF. So my brother was convinced this has to be him. Fast forward all these years later, they become my best friends. So I literally watched my best friends in the world while I was growing up at watching them watch wrestling. It's the weirdest thing. So Vlad, like there is no one in the world who gets more into watching wrestling. And I mean, you see there's like all the quote unquote super fans now and they sort of get knocked around online because, oh, they're trying to get themselves over and they're trying to take attention away. And I guess there's some narrative to that that's true and some that's not true, depending on the the fan and who the person is. But with Vlad, it was always about he wanted to cheer on his heroes and give grief to uh, who he didn't like. So if he he loved Roddy Piper, and if Roddy Piper was in the ring against Hogan, Hulk Hogan was going to have a bad day. It's just how Vlad was, and I I've seen. And it was just he was so passionate, and he hung out at the at the hotels afterwards and was polite. That all these guys sort of gravitated to him because he looks unique, he sounds unique, he's got a very thick accent. And, you know, he just was treated like one of the guys. And um, to me, like, it's weird. Like when, you know, when we travel to shows, he's the Pied Piper. Like everybody comes, they want a photo, they want a photo with him. And I, it's the funniest thing. And he, he is so taken aback by it and humbled by it, but he's like, okay, sure, let's do it. And like, he, like, I can tell you like, that WWE honor that they gave him at WrestleMania in Tampa and then MLW gave him something similar a while after, 
like though to him those are like academy awards because he just loves wrestling and the idea that wrestling loved him back in some way shape or form to him especially now uh for those who don't know he's dealing with parkinson's disease which right uh has been brutal on him and he's not retired so basically what he does is he just tries to work on his health and watches wrestling all day which you know if you're vladimir that's there's a lot of positives to that but it's getting harder and harder for him to get around but yeah like you know there he's just got this beautiful love story for wrestling and to this day if you're at a show and he's there there's no one it's like he turns in like we always say he he oh he's gone to peter pan like that's what we kind of say it's like he's a kid and he he's just in love with being there nothing makes him happier than watching it and clapping for the near falls and seeing what's going to happen and like we took him to uh the superbond the the brand new japanese women's promotion nice. he didn't know who was going to be on the show we just said oh blah we're gonna go wrestling he sat in the front row and he was blown away by everything he had the best time and you know there's just something pure and passionate about him where in a world where everybody has the twitter fingers and they want to complain about everything or you know, I'm a big Star Wars guy. And the second I watch the new Star Wars TV shows, I like to go on Twitter to see what people say just for a couple of minutes. And then I go, oh, all I do is complain and I get off. Like nothing's ever good enough for everybody, for anybody at this point. It feels like if you're in the online community for a lot of those fans on social media with yeah. Vladimir, he's just happy to be there. And he's just like, man, that was such a good show. Even if it wasn't the best show to him, getting the chance to watch everybody go out there and perform and compete the way that they do it, it blows his mind away every time. And he's so thankful to go, especially as his health is unfortunately failing him. Yeah. I really want to see, for those who don't know, the WWE actually produced a documentary that they did a trailer of. But I've it seen never, it. You've seen the whole documentary too? The document. All right. So the documentary. Played, it hasn't come out is the, is the key to this. No. It, the, the, super fan. The story of Vladimir. The documentary played for one week at a film festival in California. So I saw it. It's and I have said and I've been beating the drums and writing about this forever. For whatever reason, they shelved it, and it wasn't anything to do with the content of the film. Just they had a they had signed their deal with A and E, uh, and they were they just changed what they were doing with original programming. Right. So like their Lex Luger documentary ended up reformatted and went up on the uh, the WWE Legends biography series. So maybe Vladimir will end up there one day. Certainly, he's a WWE legend, yeah. but. I've been beating the drums and I've told everybody in this company you could imagine. And I want to, and I want to make it clear that there were people in this people in that company that went out of their way in a major, major big way to make sure at least Vladimir got to see the documentary. So Vlad seen it, which was my number one priority. I have argued with them. Listen, he has Parkinson's. Yeah. I would like, I would personally like this to come. And I, I'm not in this thing. I have no skin in the game. It doesn't matter to me, except that it's about my friend. Right. And I want my friend to be happy. I want to see it released while he's still physically capable to go and enjoy it or do whatever they'd like him to do to promote it or just to be in a theater with a bunch of people to watch it. Because it really is like an hour, an hour and 20 minutes of a love letter about pro wrestling's number one fan, which is what he is, um, and his love of pro wrestling. And because it's so pure, the people in the wrestling world love him back. And what happens when that's taken away when COVID comes? You're right. And then, and 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 I'm not going to give like I I know we do spoilers on PW Insider. I'm not going <laughs> to spoil them. I'm not going to spoil my friend's life. But yeah. there were there was a lot of tragic things that happened to him okay. uh, on a personal level after COVID. That has nothing to do with COVID uh, for him personally, but you know the ripple effect of it yeah. and how his love of WWE sort of gets him back uh, in on the right track and. To me, I have argued to a lot of people that are executives in that company, especially with Endeavor buying WWE, just put it out on YouTube. Yep. You don't have to do a big major marketing campaign. It is a love letter to show everyone who ever loved professional wrestling or WWE, your love for this is important to WWE. And I think that if you watch it, it brings you back to that first moment of Oh, I, for me, I discovered Roddy Piper arguing with Mr. T on Saturday Night's main event, or someone discovered Steve Austin or Hulk Hogan or whoever. And it brings you back to, this is why I love this stuff. Yeah. And I think it's an important asset that that company can have. I know there, there was a documentary that, that I think is kind of similar. Um, I think it was the Phoenix basketball. No, no, it was the Toronto Raptors, who I believe oh. that's the name of the NBA team. They did a documentary on this fan who's always at uh, courtside 
for them. And he, you know, a very unique sort of personality, kind of like Vladimir. And the document, I don't, I don't know anything about professional basketball. I'm not a big sports guy. I'm more of a theater guy. But I was blown away by just how passionate this guy was and how much the team appreciated him being there and adding to the atmosphere. And I think the Vladimir documentary is very similar. And I think it would be not just about, oh, we're putting over Vladimir, right? It, obviously, I want my friend to get put over. But it's about putting over someone's love of the game and how it makes all the wrestlers and everybody in the company love what they do even more. Because there's some pretty major names that appear in that thing. Yeah. You know, from Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels on down. And it's a beautiful documentary. The team that was involved in it, they did an amazing job. I, I think maybe there might need to be a little update at the end, like a little graphic or something about yeah. his health. But I implore everybody who's within the sound of my voice, you should ask WWE to put it out. You should ask Peacock to put it out. Uh, A&E, whoever. I, I, I don't think anyone will be disappointed when they see it. It is an absolutely one of my favorite, one of my favorite WWE documentaries they've ever done. I think my favorite is the one they did on Edge when he returned mm-hmm. at the right, right after the Royal Rumble when he returned in 2020. But this is up there, and, and it's it's not a wrestling documentary. It's a human interest piece about a very interesting person who found passion in life and found inspiration through through WWE. You know, like he's an American citizen now because of WWE. Like they inspired him to go and get naturalized. Like there's a lot of things. uh, And WWE was his best friend for a lot of years. You know, I could say, oh, he's my friend. He's my brother. And we've all got our friends. But in a lot of ways, WWE has been his best friend for his entire life. And, you know, when he, when they gave him that, oh, you're the official super fan award. You couldn't have pried that thing out of his hands. When we flew home, he was scared to put it down on the airplane because he was worried, oh, if it falls, it breaks. And, you know, because it was encased in glass and everything else. He, like it, it was like he got an Academy Award. You know, that's awesome. Major League Baseball doesn't give fan don't, don't give fans awards. Yeah. You know, um, WWE surprised a fan with an award to say, "Hey, we appreciate what you've done for our company." And so far, he's the only person to ever get that award, and might be the only person to ever get that award. So, I mean, he's in the time capsule. They might as yeah. well put him in the encyclopedia now. I, I, I'm totally behind. I, I, I hopefully in the new TKO regime, you know, people will realize what they have there. I don't know. You know, you mentioned there's existing contracts, A and E programming, yeah, and, and things that need to be done. But and just, there are pe- and there are people I know who on a on a consistent basis have brought it up. Good. And there's no, you know, there's no evil here. Like nobody, there's no like right. no, no one's twisting their mustache in the background. Ha ha ha! We screwed Vladimir. There's Even though the big guy does have a pretty good mustache now. Well, I'm not getting near that. Um, but the um, the let's leave Gomez Adams out of this. Um, but I don't think it's anybody's purposely gone out of their way not to release it. It's just been there's been shifting in their landscape, and I think it's yeah. something that's been unfortunately lost in the cracks. That's why I've been so vocal about it, and I've spoken to people in the company about it because I just want it out. I think people will love it, and it's about someone I care about on a very deep basis. Like he's not even my friend; he's like my brother at this point, you right. know. And 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 if I if I'm lucky enough to have that voice where I can remind people, like, hey, remember this thing you did that you spent money on that is really special and should be out for everyone to see that will make your company look better? I'm gonna do that. You know, it's 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 that simple, and I would do it if. If it was anything that was that good that WWE wasn't releasing that I was aware of, I just hope it doesn't turn into like the Bret Hart Tom McGee documentary, where fifty years from now, when you know we're we're, yeah. we're all too old to in in our walkers and our wheelchairs to go to a premiere, they're like, oh, remember this lost documentary? Yeah. I don't want that to happen to it. It's too they, special. They just they need to move it. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your. Uh... You've had some unique opportunities to interview certain people, but there were a couple that I wanted to talk about specifically. First, you recently had the opportunity to interview Nails as part of yeah. the launch High Spots TV. As best as you can sum it up, what was that like? So I got the call that uh, they had made a deal with Nails and that they wanted me to fly to Minneapolis to do the interview. And my first response was, he's never going to show up. And so I they, they assured me he was going to show up. And I'll be honest, I was in the studio waiting. I did not believe he was going to show up and talk about anything until I saw him walking down the hallway because I could see him through the glass of the, of the studio. And I was like, oh, oh, shoot, he showed up. Wow. I could not believe it. Um, he was great. And there was, you know, there was sort of there was sort of this aura to him because this is a guy who attacked allegedly Vince McMahon. Um, this is a guy who disappeared. He never did any interviews. He stopped doing independence at a certain point. 
And you never know with older talents, especially ones who have kind of left the business, what's going to be their level of recall, how much are they going to be want to talk about. And he was a little concerned. He did not want to talk about the Vince McMahon stuff at first. And I said, I got a plan B here. Because in my one of my, you know, when I'm hired to do something like that for highspots.tv, one of my jobs is to make sure that if we have to pivot, we can pivot. So I had a series of questions that was almost like a true crime investigation. Walk us through the blow by blow, you know, like a, like a game of Clue. Who, what, when, where, and why? And why did you hit Mr. McMahon with the wrench? Like, basically. And once it was clear he was not comfortable doing that, it was like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Here's all the things that people have said on record that you allegedly said and did that day. Bret Hart, Jimmy Hart, uh, the late Charlie Norris. We're going to go through these and you're going to tell us what the truth and what's true and what's false. And through that, you can kind of piece together what happened with him when he makes references to a certain Vince McMahon and calls him, uh, you know, the, 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 the accused and things like that. And, and basically uh, puts his version together and basically admits he was upset about money. He was upset about promises broken and he'll never admit that he purposely did this, but you kind of get the impression he knew what he was getting into that day when he walked into that room. That's pretty wild. And then the other one that I wanted to bring up that you had an opportunity to interview was CM Punk during one of his off times uh, after WWE, I think, probably before AW and just my, that- yeah, I think it was even, I think yeah, he was in the, he was doing some acting at that point. He might have been through UFC. So what happened there is Conrad Thompson had booked him for Starcast and wanted him to do a live show. And he basically said, well, if you're going to do that, get Mike Johnson, which was a huge compliment. Um, yeah. I knew him way back to his IWA Mid-South and, and Ring of Honor days. Um, so I, I went to Chicago and did it. And we're backstage. And I'm like, all right, hey, thanks for asking me to do this. What do you, is there anything you don't want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? And he looks at me and he shrugs. He goes, I don't know. We'll figure it out. And so the funny part is, like, I had sort of bullet points of, of potential topics and I, if you see, if you watch that pay-per-view, when I walk out, I've got like a piece of paper in my hand. I put it down on the table that they had in between the seats. He walks out, he puts his hat on top of the paper. I can't see anything. So that, that pay-per-view, would, however long it ran, is like 90 minutes, two hours of complete improv. Nothing, nice. nothing. The only thing I had in my brain was we'll start him out talking about acting because that's what he's doing now and get mm-hmm. him a little comfortable and conversational and that way we're not just like, so you walked out of WWE. How much do you hate Vince McMahon? Because once you start there, you know, and, and if he's not downhill, if he's not, if, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's the type of person where if you've got, if you've moved him into the red zone, it might be hard to pull him back out and make him put him in, in the black again. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, not to use a, 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 a quote from the Avengers. I want to make sure there wasn't any red on our ledger as black widow would say in uh, the Avengers films. Uh, and make sure that it was copacetic for him. But also, we had a live audience of a couple hundred people, maybe a thousand people in that room. I needed them to be entertained as much as I needed it to be an, a, 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 an interview. So usually, you know, when I do an interview, it's like, you know, like we're talking now, we're just having a conversation. Yeah. That was the first time, especially in a live setting on a, on a broadcast, where I had an audience that I had to think about and listen to them and hope that if I hear them reacting to something, all right, let's follow up. Like we were, t- he was telling the story about the rock and he made a comment about, I was a uh, D word to the rock. And I, and I heard people kind of react to it and chuckle. And I was like, well, why were you a D to the rock? And all of a sudden the room goes, Ooh, and I'm like, he said it, not me. We got to follow up. Um, right. But it was, I thought it was a good conversation. I was very, very happy with it. I know there were people at the time who were like, well, why aren't you asking him about the active litigation? And I'm like, gee, let's think about this. He's going to be on stage for two hours. And do I want to put him in a position where he might say something actionable and we all end up getting right. uh, subpoenaed? Or do I want to have a good conversation that people will enjoy and listen to? And I was very, I was very proud to do it. Uh, same way I was proud to do nails. You know, I interviewed Ric Flair in the last week twice yeah. as a weird turn of events. Once on, once on the phone for one project and once live at New York Comic Con. It's like anytime you have the chance to kind of pick into the brains and hopefully not just talk about like, let's do the checklist of, oh, you were here, you were here, you were here. I don't like interviews like that. I don't want to hear why you did four drop kicks instead of three. I think that's yeah. a waste of our time. But if you want to talk about what you were going through as a life experience, when, like I talked with Rick about this, you know, you wrestled Terry Funk. He was one of the few people who could kind of push you out of your, uh, your, your comfort zone. What is that like for you when you are Ric Flair and you know what ticks for Ric Flair? And here's Terry Funk and all his madcap madness. 
yeah. uh, pushing you, but you have a deep respect for him, you know, and it, it it's always interesting. And sometimes to me, the life stories of these personalities and these people are more interesting than, than the storylines of what they're doing in the ring. Like Bruno San Martino, who I, I had the blessing to interview a couple of times, his life story coming from Italy and living through World War II and hiding in a mountain from the Nazis and then not getting on the boat with the rest of his family because he had rheumatoid fever, uh, uh, rheumatic fever, rheumatic fever, which eventually is what killed, got him very sick at the end of his life. It came back. Um, So he had to come later and being sort of like this hundred pound weakling and going to the gym and the YMCA to build himself up because he was weak. And then he ends up becoming like this big Italian strong man. Like that life story is amazing. To me, that's as interesting or more interesting than what happened the night you wrestled Gorilla Monsoon in the Boston Garden, as interesting yeah. as that might be. That's you know, kind of like where, where the seed for this show came from for me was just all of the interesting conversations I've had with wrestlers. They're some of the most interesting people I've ever talked to. Absolutely. So I want that. I don't like, I don't like, I do care from some extent of like, Hey, well, what happened when you wrestled Stan Hansen or whatever? And, you like, want, yeah, and, and they want to promote their projects and you want them to promote their projects, yeah. but you want to get a little bit deeper and talk to the people behind the characters and the people behind the public personas. And uh, you know, when, when I do my job, right. And you do your job, right. We're lucky enough to do that. And, Sometimes those conversations are great, and sometimes they go in a direction where you ask a question, and you could just tell either by their body language yeah. or how their tone changes. Oh, they didn't like that. I definitely had that experience with Road Warrior Animal. Uh, you know, rest in peace. Like, yeah. we brought up stuff, and suddenly he was just like, got very stiff. And I was like, okay. I, I, went, <laughs> the wrong, I, went, I went the wrong way on the, uh, the Yellow Brick Road. I got to turn back around and try and salvage this, you know? And Sometimes that happens because you don't know what their what their thought process is as they're interview as they're asking as they are answering your questions. Yeah, um, we're going to move on to something we call the three count. Now it's going to be three quick questions and your answers. Okay. So the first one, your favorite ECW moment, and what was Come it on, like? That's hard. If you had to pick, you could pick more than one if you want to. Okay. No My favorite ECW moment is the first night I went to the sh- first night, first time I went. Uh, when Worlds Collide, Sabu and beautiful Bobby Eaton against Terry Funk and Arn Anderson. And I will never forget, Arn Anderson turned on Terry Funk, beat him half to death with a chair, and Sabu beat him, uh, Terry Funk, with a Boston Crab. Me, Terry Funk, submit. Which in 1994, seeing a top guy submit to a submission hold was mind-blowing. And what I will never forget about it is, when Terry's in the hold, he's screaming, Somebody help me. Somebody help me. <laughs> and, you know, and then he gets out of the ring and he walks past everybody and he's like, what the heck is wrong with you guys? I called for help. I thought you liked me. You know, if I asked you for help, why don't you help me? And in a time period where we're talking race car drivers and voodoo guys and WCW is not really great, there was a grittiness and a vibrancy. I always equate ECW to like the best of Jim Crockett promotions if everyone was on acid at the time. It had all of the sportsmanship and the athletics and the competition and the grit of Jim Crockett promotions, but it was so scrambled and twisted and it was so much fun. And from the first time I walked in that building, I knew what it was. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm in CBGB because I had been to that place a million times in high school and nights I wasn't supposed to be out, but I was going to see living color and fake the more and things like that. And first time I went to the ECW arena, I, I was like, this is like, CBGB meets the Star Wars Cantina. This place is amazing. Awesome. And I mean, and, and of course, you know, the first pay-per-view, barely legal, being there after the, the the Transformer Blue, and there's no power, and it's like Mardi Gras. Everybody's jumping up and down. People who don't like each other in that building are jumping up and down. They're so happy that ECW accomplished this thing. Terry Funk is bleeding half to death, walking through the crowd, hugging people with Tommy Dreamer. Joey Styles is up in the old eagle's nest in the corner, Jan dancing and jumping up and down. And he's rushing through the crowd to go greet his wife. And just as he gets to his wife, Paul Heyman jumps in front of him and hugs him. And then Paul and Todd Gordon are hugging. And the whole crowd's chanting for a speech. And Paul's like, five minutes, five minutes, because he wants to go in the back and say thank you to the crew. And then there's very little footage of this. I think Beyond the Mat had some, like, footage like little snippets in the in their documentary the barry blosky film yeah when paul Heyman goes out to the ring the mics won't work nothing works the <laughs> lights don't work and here's this rambunctious crazy hardened south philly audience half of them in tears everyone's acting like it's mardi gras meets new year's meets the super bowl because this little company that could finally accomplish this major accomplishment and paul's talking to everybody from the ring like i'm speaking to you 
and yeah. everybody's just standing there in reverence in silence. And, and Paul's not, he's not, I'm Paul Heyman. You know, he's not doing the Paul Heyman or my name is, he's not doing any of that. He's just Paul speaking to people. Yeah. And I don't remember what he said, but I remember it was so heartfelt. And one by one, all the baby faces are trickling out. And, and Paul says something like, you know, we can't thank you enough. And then the crowd, because it's Philadelphia, starts chanting next month free. Like, like the company <laughs> just spent more money than they ever had in their lives to make this happen. And Philadelphia is like, give us next month free for then. That's like, that's that relationship in a nutshell. Yeah, they, though, it, so. they, that, that Philly, like that audience was great to be at. It wasn't for ECW. Certainly I wouldn't be doing this either. Um, that's where I met Dave and I yep. did stuff for their website and whatnot. But that audience, they really were like, you, we'll give you one chance. If you do great, we love you, and you can come back. If you don't do great, off to the gallows with you. You Very rarely did people fail on their first night in that building and get a second chance to to redeem themselves. Like once you were with the, once they were with you, and you had a bad night, okay, we forgive you. Try better. But if you were coming in, they were like, "Go ahead, impress me." What do you? Who are you supposed to be? And it was like that for everybody, no matter who they were whether it was Lance Storm or Chris Jericho or Conan or anybody like you, those fans were so smart and you know, everyone thinks like, Oh, it's just like the smart, like newsletter reading fans. A lot of that audience were just hardened South Philly kids who yeah. lived a very hard blue collar life who were going out drinking for the night and they wanted to watch people beat the living crap out of each other. And right. they, it was like, you either entertain me or I'm you, I, you, I have no, no purpose for you. And it was a very unique place. And it was, it, you know, it was a scary place. Like the first time you go there, you'd see there were crack, crack vials and needles all over the place. And they, you know, it's that, that area around South Philly is very built up. Now there's a Chuck E. Cheese and an IHOP and a Target <laughs> and all these other things. Back then it was a bunch of burnt out warehouses and the ECW arena was on a corner that didn't officially exist. They basically paved the road themselves locally. That's corner wow. written or wasn't a, wasn't on a map. That's why it was so hard to find back in the day before there were GPSs and things like that. But you would go and it would seem like, ah, it's okay. The more you went, but then when you brought someone there the first time, you could see the white in their faces. Cause they were like, where are you taking me? You know, you're taking me to like Beirut or something. Yeah. So, you know, so it was a crazy life experience, but one I would never, never give up for a million years because it being there helped me like really prepare to like, meet people and network and, and things like that. And, you know, the, the independent scene serves a lot of the same purpose for me now, but that period of time was really special. So I know I gave you a long answer, but that would be, the, those, those would be the two things that are tied. If we talk favorite matches, uh, I could probably come up with other stuff, but I don't want to. Yeah. The second question on the three count, who is someone you've never interviewed in your wrestling career who you think would be interesting? And it can be passed obviously too. Okay. Um, Oh, it could be passed. Oh, everyone's yeah, gonna say Bruce, everyone's gonna say Bruiser Brody. Um, but if I could sit down with Terry Bollea, not Hulk Hogan, hmm. and really get him to talk about his career in an honest way, and not the I slammed the big stinky giant, to rip my back out, and then I flew to Japan and flew back, and I wrestled three times in eighteen hours. You know, the, the I don't want the fairy tales. We've seen the fairy tales, but if we could get Terry Bollea to sit down and just talk about what it was like to be the guy in 83 in the AWA Rocky 84 jumping to Vince being the guy facing Dr. D Don Morocco, Roddy Piper and all those people. And really what it was like being the guy that the entire machine of that company was built around. Cause think about this, you know, we talk about, Oh, Roman Reigns is the one. If Hulk Hogan broke his leg in 1985 or 86 and was out for a year, the, the entire trajectory of professional wrestling changes forever. Totally. There's not a second guy. Like I could say, oh, it should be Roddy Piper because I love Piper. But to me, Hogan, especially if you grew up in that era, there was nothing like sitting in Madison Square Garden and watching Hogan walk out of that aisle, turn around to the people above and behind him and do that point and then walk out to Real American, hit the ring, bounce off the ropes and do that to you, to everybody. And then people forget he sold for like 90% of the match yeah. and almost got pinned like a million times before he finally got the big Hulk up thing. That act was fascinating if you were a kid. And it was so much nationalistic pride at that point. We're talking the pride, the height of Reaganomics, and he's red, white, and blue against the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov and all these other foreign menace characters. Like, there's a great life experience there for him to talk about. 
I don't know that he remembers what the truth is versus the fantasy. But if we could get him to open up and we could get behind the curtain and, and find the, the great the great Wizard of Oz, and, <laughs> you know, not the guy floating in the air, but the real you know the guy from Kansas whose balloon blew in. If we could get him to sit down and talk, that's the one person I've never spoken to that would be fascinating. I just don't think that person would ever exist in a public forum. Um, I've never interviewed Paul Heyman. He's been there when I've interviewed Brock. Uh, wow. And obviously, Paul is a very, very fascinating individual. Right. I, you know, lots of good, lots of bad. But, you know, sitting down with him, I think, is always educational. Yep. And I think even if even if he's going to tell the tall tale, right, it's going to be fascinating for people to listen to. Yeah. Good, good but, answers. I enjoyed those. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the last question I had on a three count was, uh, if you remember the first wrestling show you ever attended and what was, yes. the, main, what was the main event? All right. December 26, 1986, my father took my brother and I on the Long Island Railroad to Madison Square Garden. The main event was Hulk Hogan against Kamala. I remember that match. Oh, it was great. Kamala was so underrated. He was so great. And he's someone I wish they would put in the WWE Hall of Fame one day. Um, I loved Kamala my whole life. Always thought he was great. I was a little heartbroken the first time I saw him where he wasn't uh, in the in the character, so to speak. Like a little piece of childhood, you know, broke away that day. But I'll, like Fabulous Moolah wrestled um, Leilani Kai. Pedro Morales wrestled Dino Bravo. Blackjack Mulligan wrestled, I believe, Nikolai Volkov. The Hart Foundation wrestled uh, Dick Slater and Corporal Kirshner. The first ever match, I believe, was Paul Roma and Terry Gibbs. Um, the Honky Talk Man wrestled Siva Afi. Oh, that's someone I'd like to interview. Where's he today? Um, but yeah, I remember going and like just being blown away by the energy of the Hulk Hogan entrance and just the just sheer magnitude of being in Madison Square Garden for a show where, you know, they didn't have the production that they capabilities that they had now. There's right. no screen above the ring. There's no big entrance. It's an aisle, a ring, and a bunch of spotlights. And they had to captivate and keep 20,000 people or whatever it was happy. And I remember going home like so like, just like, oh, my God, I cannot wait till we go again. And it was some time before we went again. And then it was going to the Nassau Coliseum, which never had the same energy as the Garden. But That's yeah, what my I, first show was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been to a couple of those, a couple of those Nassau shows where you think everybody fell asleep on the, on the way to the show. Um, but, yeah, like I, I can still remember it vividly. And you know what? It's funny. You say, you know, who do you want to interview? I've always said, and we've tried to do this, and it just never happens. I've always said I want to get my father on PW Insider to talk about his memories of that night. Wow. Because I think it would be interesting to have to, to bounce off of him and yeah. pick my father's brain, especially, you know, uh, he had a quadruple bypass a couple of years ago. We, we were that close to losing him. Wow. So, I, and I mean, like, literally, like, he felt fine. And, and this is like, this will be my, uh, my, my version of the story where, uh, I want people to realize, take care of yourselves, um, which is something as I get older, I try so much harder to do. So my mom was a nurse. She was retired and she had been ill with COPD. And my dad um, had had, you know, stents in the heart or whatever. And my mom kept saying, to him, you don't look right. You don't look right. Something's wrong. And she just badgered him until he finally agreed and went and we got an angiogram. And I would take him and he goes in for the procedure He's like, I'm fine. My dad's a very gruff, proud man. I'm mm -hmm. fine. They come back out and they go, your father's not going anywhere. He's having a quadruple bypass in two days. Wow. We're admitting him. So my dad's still like, I'm fine. I'm fine. That night, he's in the hospital room. They've got him hooked up to all the machinery. His heart stops. If he was anywhere else in the world other than that, we would have lost my dad that day. Instead, the next day, he got a quadruple bypass. And he's good and he's healthy. And good. unfortunately, you know, three months later, we lost my mom out of mm -hmm. nowhere. And you never know when those losses are going to come. You never know when life is going to flip you upside down. Just like the night I was in the car wreck. I was a passenger. We never saw the car come and it hit us head on. Never saw it. Like the person driving never saw it. I never saw it. I was knocked out. You never know when these things are going to happen and when life's going to hit you. All you can try and do is prepare for the worst. And the best way you can prepare for the worst is try and stay as healthy as you can and make sure that all the people that you care about, you tell that you care about them. Because it's sad to say this, you never know when it's going to be, you'll never know the last time you have a conversation with someone that means someone, something to you of great importance. So you got to just always kind of, when you're trapped in the grind, as I say, you're like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. It's important to take the intermission in the middle of the show of the day 
and take accounting of who have I not spoken to. And let me check on people that I care about because you never know when something's going to go wrong, even for yourself, you know, you take care of yourself. Um, and it, it's been harder for me, you know, as I get older, because you have more, more responsibilities, more priorities, and you put everybody else in front of yourself as you get older, put your kids in front of yourself, and everything else. But, you know, you got to do what you have to do for the people you care about and for yourself to make sure you were there for the people you care about. And so, you know, that's that. If we got a moral to the story of, of this interview, that's the one I want to tell everybody. Like, at some point, you never know when something bad's going to happen, and it always sucks and it's always tragic. But try and try and prepare yourself, knowing that you have to be ready for it, and you should make sure that everybody you care about—you really your friends, your family, even your siblings—my siblings drive me crazy, but I love them. Make sure they all know how important they are to you and how much you love them. Because I almost lost my dad that day. And had he been anywhere else in the world, in a hotel room, in his own bedroom, anywhere, I would have lost him. And then we did lose my mom. And when we, we knew, listen, no one wouldn't see the battle against COPD. It's like, it, you know, Leonard Nimoy couldn't beat COPD. And, you know, everybody loved that man. And he yeah. had more money than, than any of us could ever hope to have. And he couldn't stop it. So if he can't, nobody can if you're diagnosed it, with it. But we didn't know we were going to lose her when we did. And it was awful and tragic. And, uh, you know, it, it was a hard couple of years after losing her. Really really sincerely hard it's hard still hard some days some yeah. days my hardest job the hardest part of my job some days is waking up and not being in a good mood because i'm just sad about something and getting out of bed to work but i have no choice because there are people who depend on me readers and people that care about me and i have to get up whether i want to or not yeah. but you know i want everybody to know like you're not alone going through this going through the hard stuff but tell everybody you care about how much you love them because that's more important than anything wrestling related we'll talk about today or anything that we love that we talked about today. Well, Mike Johnson, thank you so much for joining me today on Another Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I feel like we could do this whenever we want and there'd be never a lack of anything to talk about. But I, I'm, I'm really grateful that you uh, you came on and, and, and did this today and uh, all the best to you and uh, congratulations on all you've accomplished and all that you will continue to. I appreciate that. I don't feel like I've accomplished anything. I just feel like I've been lucky. Like I always, it's, it's like, I'm so hard on myself. I don't look at what I've done. I look at what I wanted to do that I haven't done yet. That and that stuff drives me nuts. That's part of the reason why my sleep patterns are such garbage on a daily basis. But I want to say this: you have always been such a good force around wrestling. You've always been such a classy individual. Anytime I've seen you, and I won't talk about it, but there was one time where we sat together, and then you 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 wrote me right away and was like, "I need you to know something." Yeah, and because I, I want you to be okay. And I thought that was so classy of you. And it spoke so highly of you and who you are as a person, not even as a writer or as a wrestling person, but as a person. And I, and I immediately filed in my brain, all right, if I can ever do anything for him, it's done. Because that's a classy individual in a world where class seems to have dissipated in so many corners of our world. You know, it, 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 there's no polite discourse anymore. And you're a good guy. And I, I, like, I don't do a lot of these. I really don't just because I don't have time. Yeah. Because I look at it like if I'm doing somebody else's, like we do something for myself. But when you asked, I, I was like immediately, yes. Because you, Phil, you're a good dude, and I think you're a great person, and I appreciate you. what you do. And when you write something, I certainly always go out of my way to read it. So and I can't say that about a lot of people, but congratulations to you and everything you've done. All right. You're Thank you so much. Apparently. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me today on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I'd like to thank Mike Johnson from PW Insider for joining me today. Join me next week where our guest is one of the biggest superstars in pro wrestling, the total package, Lex Luger. Lex just started a new podcast called Lex Expressed through ad-free shows, and it will be great to get to speak to him. Have a great week, everyone.